Africa Climate Podcast. Hello, I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Africa Climate Podcast. I sincerely appreciate your support. This podcast would not have come this far without you. So thank you. In my motherland, Kenya, we say Asante Sana. This podcast is dedicated to bridging the climate reporting gaps in Africa. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Now, have you had a chance to listen to Africa Climate News YouTube yet? Now, this week we are talking to Kenyan farmers. Um, These farmers have been receiving text messages from the Kenya Met on how the weather is expected to change. So I talked to them to understand how this has impacted their farming. Since traditional weather forecasting has really been made unreliable by the changing climate, and as you know, the Horn of Africa right now is experiencing the worst drought. Also on our website, you'll find a story by Temo from Malawi on economic losses and psychological damages. The tropical storm Anna has brought to the communities and made no money for their recovery. Now let us shift gear to climate change and migration in Eastern Horn of Africa. And today I'm excited to be joined by a lady guest. Oh, finally, oh, this podcast host has not been doing an excellent job regarding gender balancing off. We'll see how this changes. But anyway, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today and from the International Organization for Migration to talk about the climate-induced migration. Lisa, would you please introduce yourself to our audiences? So my name is Lisa, um, Lisa Lim Aken. I'm actually from Mauritius. I work at IOM's regional office covering the East Horn of Africa and Southern Africa sub-regions. I'm the regional Migration, Environment and Climate Change Thematic Specialist. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. It's such a pleasure speaking to you today. And I just would want you to start, you know, when we talk about human mobility and migration issues, basically you find that people move and people have always moved from time immemorial. Just give us a little, just a brief history of of human mobility, specifically in, in the Horn of Africa. I think, as you say, um, people have have always moved. And I think as a continent, mobility has really played a, a key feature in the way that people live. So people have always, for example, moved to fertile areas like watersheds, you know, for agriculture. And at the same time, people have always moved away from arid um, and semi-arid areas. But I think the most the most typical type of movement that we've seen, um, which I would say is very traditional for this region and um, has been for probably centuries, is pastoralism. Um, pastoralists are probably the, the oldest um, mobile population and they use movement to make an area or a type of land, which is the arid and semi-arid lands, to make it productive. I think it's one of the only sectors that makes so much productive use of that type of land. So, yeah, um, it's, you know, it just basically shows you how normal it is for people to move um, mm. in Africa and in this region. And, and, and so when we speak about migration, basically in the traditional aspect of it to us, it is something that helps people grow resilient. But now when we're talking about climate and human mobility is we're seeing a situation where people are being forced to move or am I getting it wrong? No, you're right. Um, 
I think traditionally people have always moved based on reliable weather patterns. So they've always known um, mm. where it will rain, where there'll be pasture, where there'll be water. Um, they've always known when riverbanks will flood and silt will be laid out, which will you know, really help agriculture. But then with climate change, what's happening is that these weather patterns have become completely unreliable. And mm. for example, when it rains, it is extremely heavy, uh, much heavier than it's ever been. And for very short, intense periods. So then, you know, what happens is that is then landslides occur, uh, flash floods occur, um, water runs off and, and doesn't get time to be absorbed, you know, into water pans or, or underground. Um, so climate change is creating this level of unpredictability, which forces people to move. So, you know, in, in years gone by we knew for example that there would be drought periods you know maybe once every every five years and and now we're seeing the fifth um consecutive failed rainy season um which is you know completely unusual so how can people recover from a drought um so all the 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 coping mechanisms that were used before now with the impact of climate change are no longer becoming useful and people find themselves in a cycle of never really quite being able to recover. You know, there, the, the impacts of, of climate change on people are so different. And this is where we use that term climate change as a threat multiplier. And that's and this term I find quite useful in, in helping us understand this very complex and kind of dynamic challenge. And it means that whatever threats existed before, so uh, high levels of unemployment, or high levels of vulnerability of women and, and female-headed households, these threats are now going to be magnified. They're going to be increased. They're going to be compounded by the different climate change uh, events. So certainly, like communities that were previously mar- marginalized, who didn't have access to water or healthcare or other services, you know, will have even greater challenges because of drought, and which will now you know further reduce the, the few sources of water that they had before. Or floods, which may now increase their needs for, for health services that they didn't have access to anyway. You know, climate change is so unpredictable now. Um, and it's difficult to know a location that has, you know, never had flash floods before suddenly does. Sometimes back I did a, a series actually was looking into mental health issues and climate change. And one of the things that actually was coming out from that episode with the communities that I actually visited is the fact that you know, communities are not able, already they're not able to actually cope because just before you can go back to life and normal life, a drought has happened. Just before Mm. um, you can deal with the effects of the drought, a flooding has happened. And that's what Mm. we are actually seeing. When I speak to scientists, they keep saying that the Western Indian Ocean is actually warming fastest than any part of um, the tropical ocean. And you find that yeah. now that sends mixed kind of signals in terms of flooding, of uh, storms and drought alternating within now the Horn of Africa countries. And I'm wondering in terms of when it comes to like the region, you find majority of these people are pastoralists. They've traveled for years, for over a long time. They knew how to cope. They looked at the weather in terms of understanding, and they had grazing patterns by which they knew at this time of the season we moved to this particular area or this mm-hmm. particular country, and that's how we grew resilient, or that's how they survived. Wondering in terms of a strategy that can improve livelihood, because sometimes you also find that migration can become a development enabler. I'm, one, I'm wondering a strategy to improve sustainable livelihoods and help these communities adapt from these pressures, environmental pressures and climate change. 
Yeah, that's a, a really big question. Um, you know, you touched upon psychological well-being. You touched upon people being unable to to recover before you know another disaster occurs. And you talked about uh, pastoralists and and the challenges they face. And if we look at specifically at at pastoralists, there are so many different impacts that come from different directions that affect their their livelihoods and their well-beings. And and these impacts are not always just because of climate change. You know, we have, for example, um, the commercialization of pastoralism now, which puts a lot of pressure on traditional pastoralists because, you know, they don't uh, typically have the massive herds and maybe the, the manpower that some of the commercial outfits do. So then in addition to that, you now have um, the issues with climate change, which now cause not only for them to change the traditional roots that they had before, and those traditional roots were roots that had been pre-agreed, I would say, with yeah. um, farming communities along the way. So they now have to venture into different areas where there aren't maybe any existing agreements. Then you have the issues where land is now being fenced off, preventing access to resources because they're limited or scarce. So, you know, um, land being fenced off in front of, you know, around lakes or rivers or water pans so that pastoralists can no longer access them or farmers now having to farm closer to, to rivers for water access and the pastoralists now are faced with farms that block their route. And then also changing precipitation patterns such that farming is no longer predictable. So a time when pastoralists knew there was going to be a harvest and they would bring their cattle post-harvest is now in full harvest and their mm-hmm. cattle come in and, you know, and eat obviously the, the crops. So there are all these different challenges. And in terms of solutions, I think the important thing is that we need A, to understand all the different aspects that impact on a particular group say, if we're using pastoralists as the example, we need to understand Mm. all the different challenges that they face, not just the ones related to climate change, but also the policy ones and, you know, their access to to services, their capacity and ability to adapt and, you know, the investment that is there to, to help them, you know, develop new skills. And then we need to really help facilitate their adaptive capacity. So IOM has just recently completed a report on the adaptive capacity of pastoralists in the IGAD region. It was conducted together with uh, ICPALD, which is the pastoral livestock arm of IGAD and um, a researcher. And we realised that what we need to do is to look at what adaptation exists for pastoralists, what we can support. And one of the things I think that is fantastic about IGAD is they have this new protocol on transhumans. And within that protocol, it really provides a very comprehensive uh, level of support, not only to allow pastoralists to continue moving in safe, orderly and regular ways, but also to ensure that that there is a portability of services, that they can access health services for themselves and their animals across borders. And then it also provides support for those who want to drop out of pastoralism or have dropped out of pastoralism. So it really like encourages investment in different areas for people who might have dropped out in order to allow pastoralists to have a more sedentary life if that's what they 
you know, would like. It's a massive issue. It's a, it's a very comprehensive issue and it really necessitates a very kind of coordinated and collaborative level of support. And when you talk about this whole issue of migration, now we've seen issues of refugees that comes out of a result of conflict from a, a specific area to a different, but then again, maybe in between also a climate disaster happens. In terms of the larger climate talk, do we draw a line between climate migrant and other different migrations? Is it definable? Uh, it is not really possible to clearly define what a migrant is, what a climate or environmental migrant is. It is possible to define what a refugee is, and we already have that definition. But the definition of refugee does not include the uh, people who are fleeing climate-related disasters and emergencies. And there is a lot of talk about that whole concept of, you know, providing people with um, certain protections in the event that they are climate or environmental migrants. But for the very reason that you cannot define what a climate or environmental migrant is, those discussions don't, don't really ever go anywhere because it's just, mm. it's just difficult. If you consider somebody who is, and, we're, and now we're talking specifically about what we would call slow onset climate changes as opposed to disasters. There is a disaster like a flood, people will obviously take the life-saving option of fleeing. Then it's very mm. clear that this person has you know, fled a location because of, a, of climate change. But in the event that it's a slow onset process, like, I don't know, sea level rise, where you know, the sea comes closer and closer to your home over a period of years, or you know, drought, which becomes more and more intense or you know, repeated, over years, which is not really anticipated. In those contexts, some people will move because they have the networks or they have the the resources to move or they have just the willingness to move or their communities moving or whatever. And others, everyone else is moving, but they they don't want to move or they cannot afford to move or they don't have networks that would make them feel safe to move somewhere else. So yeah, essentially there, there, you know, there are so many different types of movement. There are some movements that are really useful. So for example, short-term movements from, and we see a lot of this in in our region, from uh, rural to urban or peri-urban areas. Uh, We Mm. call that this rural urban migration. But then, you know, these, these movements may or may not be related directly to climate change. And a lot of the time it's really related to economic, for economic reasons because of climate change. So the indirect link I would say, between climate change and mobility is what makes it very difficult to define what Mm. um, an environmental or climate migrant is. That's very interesting because the reason why I asked you, because when you understand what's happening in Somalia as we speak right now, nearly half of that of the country population are facing historical level of drought. Just the other day, we saw over one million people, and these are mostly women and children, have been displaced. And it's that whole thing with thinking COP27 is actually at the blink, it's just almost happening, taking place. 
And you wonder, this is a real, real crisis. And you think about the economy um, development trajectory of Somalia. And this means that when these climate disasters happen, if the country had a development plan, money that is specifically meant to build these people, hospitals, money that is meant to build roads, is diverted now to this crisis to make sure that these people can actually afford a meal. You know, when you start thinking of like the economic impact, when you listen to, you know, follow up internationally, the push and pull that has always been in terms of finance and now we've moved something that I envisage will be a push and pull for a long time in terms of loss and damage and all that. How do we sustainably deal with these issues as temperatures keep rising? and impacting these communities. And so they have to always be forced to move and their social fabric and the economic fabric is devastated as well as that of their country. Yeah, I mean, this is something that has been discussed, you know, at, at length um, within the the SDGs. Uh, we talked mm. about, we talk about climate change reversing developmental gains. And, you know, we see essentially not just even reversing developmental gains, but preventing altogether, you know, any type of developmental gain, because the amount of of funding required to uh, respond to disasters is just uh, overwhelming. Um, So, you know, when you talk about sustainability, for me, the the word that always comes up is prevention and and Mm. preparedness. And unfortunately, it's not as fancy. It's not. It's not as a sexy topic as disasters and emergency response, humanitarian response. I'm sure you know yourself already from the media that you know news about uh, humanitarian response or disasters is far more interesting and appealing to audiences than news about prevention. You know about building resilience and that sort of thing. So, but at the end of the day, that's what needs to be done. Disasters don't affect us all in in the same way. I come from Mauritius and in Mauritius we have cyclones every single year. Big ones, small ones, devastating ones, but we have learned to build Mm. for them. We have learned to prepare for them. You know, every every year before cyclone season, you know, the government goes around cutting down all the big trees that are blocking the roads or blocking uh, power lines. You know, there we have a, a very good early warning system and etc. And cyclones typically don't cause any deaths ever. Mm. Whereas, you know, a cyclone in um, a different country that has not does not have that same level of preparedness will you know absolutely devastate the population so there is a level of of preparedness and resilience building um that allows people to adapt to to these disasters and allows people to continue to uh, live productively and safely within these environments but then yeah. we also have to be very cognizant of the fact that with uh, you know, global warming still on on track, and um, and really the we see the intensification of of these um, hazards uh, year on year in year out. There will be some locations where people just will not be able to live anymore, um, mm. and that's that's I think a reality. So I think in IOM at least we we recognise that adaptation has its limits and that's why we would say that uh, migration is also an adaptation strategy uh, in that sometimes you just have to migrate out and you will not be able to go back and a key example Mm. is you know sea level rise when your home has basically been taken by the sea there is no other option but to be relocated elsewhere and now moving on to 
COP27. I know in July, heads of states and ministers from Eastern Horn of Africa met in Kampala and to raise awareness on climate change and environmental degradation, how it's impacting human mobility. Can we talk about what the Kampala Declaration is all about and what came out of that? Yeah, um, thanks for asking this question because this is truly, for me, um, a very exciting moment and a, a time when we're really seeing this topic of human mobility in the context of climate change uh, taking on um, a priority in the states of this uh, region. So all the, the states that came to Kampala um, clearly prioritize um, uh, human mobility in the context of climate change and, and their level of understanding of this topic was, was very high. Um, the way that they articulated the issues um, was very clear. What I would want to acknowledge is that it was, I think, the first time that so many high-level delegates from, I think, 16 African member states, um, and that included two heads of states um, from Uganda and South Sudan, uh, it was the first time all of these people at this very high level came together to develop, um, to discuss and to develop a joint approach on this topic uh, of migration, environment and climate change. That in, that in itself was very significant. And like I said, it really drives home to us how much this topic is, is at the forefront of the priorities of, of the states um, in this region and on this continent, despite all the other overwhelming priorities that they might have. So during this, it was a three-day conference. And during this conference, which was hosted and led by the government of Uganda, all of the 16 member states delivered messages about the challenges they face in relation to climate change uh, as a driver of migration, but also um, the opportunities they see for leveraging on migration in their countries and in the region. Um, we had representatives from three different ministries, um, the Ministry of Environment, uh, Foreign Affairs and Interior. So the sharing of experiences was really comprehensive, you know, it was cross-cutting and they addressed um, many different sectors. Um, and what we did is we had also invited youth representatives from 12 different countries and they shared their challenges, their hopes, their ideas, their priorities with the audience, and they interacted directly with the policy makers. Uh, we also had representatives from civil society who made their address to the policy makers, and, and they shared their perspectives from the communities they work with. So what was great was that all of these very important contributions were, were captured in this first ministerial a high-level ministerial declaration on migration, environment, and climate change, which was signed on the 29th of July. So this is called the Kampala Ministerial Declaration on Migration and Environment and Climate Change, and not to be confused with the, uh, the 2009 Kampala Declaration, which is on IDPs. And this is a, a very concrete output um, of the conference. And it, for me, it heralds the importance of this topic for our region and for the continent. And this is the first ever document of its kind. And even though it's, it's non-binding, it's a very informative document because it clearly lists the priorities of the region and it's a very strong basis from which policymakers and practitioners can build a, a stronger and more coherent response um, to addressing all these challenges. What was very clear, I think, was that the, the signatory states strongly communicated their own commitments to addressing the challenges. They, had, they put down 12 different points, um, which included things like enacting urgent regional and national legislation, policies and strategies, uh, developing comprehensive urban plans to address population surges, creating and, and uh, uh, increasing investment in the circular economy, 
And then the declaration also makes five requests of the parties to the UNFCCC, like um, scaling up climate finance and to support capacity building, technology transfer. But I think for me, one of the key reasons I really appreciate this Kampala Declaration is that it, it promotes what I feel is a truly collaborative approach in dealing with this topic. Right from the very first sentence, you know, it states, we, the ministers of environment, ministers of interior, ministers of foreign affairs, of the governments of the members of the uh, Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGAD, and the East African Community, EAC, and the states of the Eastern Horn of Africa, you know, having gathered together with high-level representatives of the African Union, UN, and development partners, and the youth. I mean, how, you know, amazing is that to show this broad collaborative approach? And then the very first line of the preamble states, you know, in the spirit of regional integration and friendship that ties the countries of the East and Horn of Africa region. Um, and then under the, the commitments, you know, it states how the different ministers and uh, ministries, the EAC, EGAD, the states, um, you know, have gathered key messages and experience from experts, from youth, from community leaders, from development partners in the spirit of international cooperation and regional integration. So this declaration, in my opinion, drives forward not only uh, an important topic, but also an important way of addressing it. As exciting it is as it is, we, we have not rested and we still have a long way to go now because we need to bring the declaration to the attention of the parties of the UNFCCC and, and the different negotiating groups so that the topic of human mobility in the context of climate change becomes part of the COP negotiations and the COP discussions. And the slogan I think that we, we used during the Kampala Declaration was, you know, we can no longer talk about climate change without talking about human mobility. And I think that's, that's the main message. Lisa, thank you so, so much. I sincerely appreciate you taking time speaking to us about human mobility and climate change. What is your final word as we head towards the COP27? Um, I don't really have a final word per se. I just feel that there needs to be a lot more uh, focus and responsibility when it comes to world leaders negotiating at COP27. A lot more focus on how climate change is impacting on the most vulnerable states. And those are not the ones in the global north, but the ones in the global south. And we hear the same message again and again. The global south is not responsible for climate change, but yet they are the yeah. ones most affected by it. And, and this is the reality. And yet I feel that there is a certain level of not wanting to, to hear that message. So I think that when more responsibility is accepted by the global north to support... Yeah. Uh, the people who really, you know, most need that support, that's when we'll start to see really concerted change. You know, we'll start to see more financing, more uh, technology and etc. You know, all these things will follow suit. And this is when, you know, we will actually be able to have a sustainable, a lasting impact on our continent. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much, Lisa. I appreciate and do hope to keep speaking to you on migration issues and to hopefully set COP27 how it takes ships. Thank you so much for, for taking your time and for your interest in the topic. Thank you. Bye, Sophie. That was Lisa Lim Aken, the IOM East and the Horn of Africa Migration, Environment and Climate Change Thematic Specialist, talking to us there about climate-induced migration in the East and Horn of Africa countries.
In the meantime, please subscribe to the Africa Climate Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast Edit, and every other channel you access your other podcast from, as well as our website, www.africaclimatechangenews.com. Also, please do subscribe to our Africa Climate News YouTube channel and followers on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I will talk to you soon. Kwaheri for now. My name is Sophie Mbogwa. Africa Climate Podcast.